0: by O'Connell Coaching. What does it mean to perceive, and just how capable are we of perceiving reality? This is a core question in the work of Christian Koseru, who is today's guest. He works in the field of philosophy of mind phenomenology and cross-cultural philosophy, especially Indian and Buddhist philosophy in dialogue with Western philosophy and cognitive science. He is the author of Perceiving Reality, Consciousness, Intentionality and Cognition in Buddhist Philosophy and edited a book on Reasons and Empty Persons, Mind, Metaphysics and Morality. He spent four and a half years in India in the mid-90s, pursuing studies in Sanskrit and Indian philosophy, and affiliated with several research institutes there, including the Mahabodhi Society, the Asiatic Society of Calcutta, and the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies. He's also from Romania, and is a European like yours truly. This topic being so central, to many ideas within Buddhism uh, that range from the metaphysics it presents to the whole notion of whether meditation can bring you closer to it or not, and whether there is such a thing as pure perception, enlightened perception, and so on. These discussions are rich and fascinating. We get into discussions on the following. Where are current debates on this immense topic of perceiving reality? If we meditate enough, will we genuinely know reality directly? Can we truly purify our perceptions of all obscurations? And what does phenomenology have to say about that? Which itself is going through something of a revival of late. What is consciousness? Which What type of take on consciousness does Christian use when discussing perception? What about panpsychism? Are there also panpsychists in the Buddhist world? We also get into discussing the usual topics of self and no-self, and think about what practitioners might do with all this. Just a heads up, a recent article has been published at the Imperfect Buddha website is called Nice, But Not Really, The Mediation of Shallow Ethics and Moral Confusion. I quite enjoyed writing it. You might quite enjoy reading it. Go and take a look. Enjoy the episode and catch you next time on the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Alrighty, let's get cracking. So, welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, Christian Koseru. For people that don't know, this is a name that has a very specific European origin. And I'm going to use this to ask you a slightly off topic first question, just because I'm happy to have a fellow European on. Most of our guests (laughs) do end up being Americans. So you're originally from uh, Romania, which is not so far from where I live. It's a country that's had many ups and downs, but it's going through an interesting period at present. How are things going there of late? And do you Tend to head back on occasion.
1: Yes, I, I actually travel there every uh, every year. There was a bit of a hiatus during the uh, pandemic, um, but uh, yes, uh, since I left the country in the early 90s, in 1992, I've been back pretty much uh, every year, uh, and I've uh, it's sort of been interesting to see the uh, the changes that the country has gone through in the last uh, roughly uh, over three decades now since the uh, uh, change of. Um, the regime there following the fall of the berlin wall in 89 uh, so uh, so yes i i keep uh, some contacts uh, both in um, academia and sort of all friends uh, and so there's been an interesting sort of a transformation that the country's gone through um um obviously you know becoming part of the european union the integration of the rest of europe although the the political situation and the war in uh, ukraine has sort of uh uh yet again uh you know, challenge the, the, the political landscape in Eastern Europe, yeah.
0: For sure. Complicated relationships, complicated region.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on is because you have interest in topics which are particularly interesting to us here on the podcast. But also to head back to a book you wrote back in 2015 about perception. Now, this mm-hmm. topic is obviously crucial both within philosophy and within Buddhism, whether it's for theorists or practitioners. The title of the book is Perceiving Reality, and that second word has a lot of baggage too. Now, I've got a range of questions which touch on philosophical and Buddhist themes. I kind of want to ask a big, big picture question. You know, perception is immense, reality is immense. Putting the two together itself is also quite a challenge. Where are we at currently? Do you think on the kind of ongoing debates of this ability or lack of to actually perceive reality?
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, thank you. Yes, um, the, uh, those are those are two huge, uh, huge topics. Um, uh, obviously, they cut across a number of uh, fields in uh, um, subdisciplines in uh, subfields in philosophy itself. Uh, and beyond that, uh, uh, in psychology, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, and the rest of the uh, disciplines. So, my um, uh, my take on um, on uh, where where we where where the debate is at the moment is um, uh, is uh, that's been sort of a an interesting uh, attempt to, on the one hand, to make the case that uh, our you know our traditional way of understand our traditional way of understanding um our the way we gain knowledge about the um the external world through our senses uh it's it's in time reliable sort of uh, one study after another in the past uh say uh half a century or so uh, has tried to argue that in fact um perception is not a reliable instrument of knowledge that we need to um discard our sort of common sense intuitions based on that and then we to defer to the sciences to tell us exactly how the world is um and on the other hand uh, one of the fallout falls i mean the fallout from that debate has been that um it's not just the perception is not reliable but in fact uh the image of the world that perception delivers is not exactly uh, reliable either so therefore reality our con- traditional conceptions of reality uh, ought to be uh, altered as well so we find ourselves in this sort of interesting landscape now where where um, you have strong what you might call anti-realist uh, 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 accounts or of knowledge that say that uh, the world is as our current science tells us that it is, um, and it is a profoundly un- uh, counterintuitive um, image of the world. And on the other hand, that we ought not to trust the testimony of our of our senses, uh, that we, that's, uh, obviously perception is not really a reliable instrument, and that we rely on things like testimony, or as I said, the evidence from um, from the sciences. Now, um, you might wonder, well okay so um this is a fairly fairly science heavy uh take on the on the debate so where does a uh you know a tradition like Buddhism come in and what can a pre modern tradition that didn't have the benefit of um the instrumentation of science uh contribute to this debate and so my take is that um uh, buddhism what's sort of interesting about about the tradition, what drew me to it in the first place um is a sort of a strong empiricist streak in that tradition of course in, understood in a non, non-modern sense that uh, privileges uh, careful observation careful analysis of the mental contents um, not exactly in the sense in which you understand observation in the um, in the sciences but nonetheless in a, more like in the sense in which we think of uh, ability to to uh, account for the contents of our experience uh, in the phenomenological tradition by bracketing any kind of um uh, assumptions, particularly metaphysical assumptions about how the world is. So I found uh, in my early readings of uh, Buddhist texts and uh, my dives into the Indian philosophical, classical Indian philosophical tradition, that there was a lot there that seemed to speak to some of our modern concerns. And that was sort of the impetus for me to uh, to dive deeper into this debate.
0: Good, That's a, that's a good summary. It's also Odd. I've, I've always found it odd. I mean, I've read some of the scientific material, I've listened to various arguments claiming that our perception cannot be relied upon, but it always seems like conceptual overreach, in the sense that, okay, we might discover from science that our perceptions are not 100% reliable, or they do not capture fully right objective material reality, but the idea that they would somehow be discounted because of that conclusion seems rather excessive uh, at, at the very least I think that's something we can probably agree on would you say
1: yeah absolutely uh, in fact um, uh, so m- much of the the, the the basis as I said on the one hand you've had this sort of strong anti-realist uh, uh, trend that uh, tries to discount the the testimony of our you know senses mm. but on the other hand uh, it's it is the case that um, that perception, um, uh, including our ordinary ways of uh, coping with the you know the objects and, th- uh, and things of our lives of their day to day lives is our most sort of uh, you know um, reliable practical tool for navigating the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so uh, f- there are sort of different ways to take a to, to go with this. So obviously, no one, i mean, very few, I should say, both, phlo- both in philosophy and outside uh, philosophy in the in the sciences, very few people today rely on the kind of old-fashioned, naive um, view that the world is just as our senses delivered uh, to us, right? So the kind of naive realism about perception is a position that's you know seldom entertained these days. Um, so what you have instead is sort of various kind of constructivist uh, accounts um, that tries to say that, well, yes, uh, objects may uh, appear the way they they do to our senses but in fact they're not that not that way and we learn to navigate to, na- to, to navigate the world despite the fact that uh, we navigate a world as constructed by in some sense by uh, by our minds but at the same time there have been theories of perception that say this notion that's that's um perception is some sort of a, an instrument like a that 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 puts us in contact with things that are separate from the human mind, or that in fact um, the world just sort of washes over us, right? So there is some sort of an internal perceiver, uh, homunculus, or you know a, a, a sense of self there somewhere hidden uh, within, and that what the senses, what perception does, it simply puts this inner self or whatever you know in inner mind in touch with the, with uh, with an outside, with a world out there. That view is um, is sort of um, been challenged. Um, as well, so what you have instead is this notion that in a view that I'm, I find myself rather uh, I, I've, I am sympathetic with this notion that perception is in a sense is active that uh, we perceive by engaging with the objects and things in our uh, environment by turning our heads by by uh, seeking to to gain a measure of what uh, the French philosopher. Um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty called maximum grip, where we have a maximum um, perceptible um, framework of perce- uh, perceptibility. So the idea is that yes, to a certain extent, um, we the image of the world that we have through our senses is constructed, but it's not constructed in a, in a um, in a sense that suggests that it's not real, right? Um, uh, that it's constructed in a way that suggests that the individual, the perceiver, is actively engaged with the objects and things in his or her uh, surroundings, and so we are active perceivers. We're active participants in the world that we um, that we uh, that we navigate. Good. I'm not sure if that makes any much sense, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: it, it makes sense to me, and I think you've explained it well enough that it should make sense to even our, our less philosophically minded listeners. So that, that, that's great. I think as well, the word phenomenology nowadays, I wouldn't quite say it's entered popular culture, but it's certainly um, a familiar term to even Buddhist practitioners who've kind of read beyond the tradition and are trying to make sense of this complex relationship between perception and reality. So that's great. Plus, you mentioned uh, Melu Ponti, who I'm a big fan of, just because I think he humanizes phenomenology in a way that brings it back into the world, as, as you were just suggesting. And I think that's the second kind of odd, instinctive, non-professional response I have to people that claim that we can't necessarily trust our senses, is that our senses are already in the world, right? We are made of the stuff of the, the earth. So it, it's a kind of odd twist to assume that we are not participating actively in a in a pre-made world, which we do perceive, we just don't perceive it necessarily fully or completely or 100% accurately, but it is itself within a world that already exists. That in itself at least gives it certain, certain validity, a certain um, trustworthiness. Would that, would that be fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to circle back to, uh, to Melo Ponty, uh, uh, the reason why his take on the, on the phenomenological uh, tradition made phenomenology in some sense more... Um, he gave a measure of sort of public um, acceptability in currencies because he really brought it to the body. He emphasized yeah. the importance that the body plays in articulating um, our way of sort of moving or being being in the world. Uh, so once you emphasize the importance that the body plays as a sort of a as a um, as a medium for the expression both of life and of uh, and of knowledge, it all of a sudden it makes it a lot more a lot more um, accessible. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm just wondering as well, because your book does bring certain Buddhist traditions into a, an almost contemporary discussion with Western philosophical trends. Is there some sort of let's say case for saying that this process has taken place within Buddhism too? because it does, in a sense, act as a a first level of counter to this idea that the observer is somewhere inside that watches the world from outside, which is, of course, a common trope that runs through certain approaches to Buddhist meditation, right? And there's this fostering of something we might call non-attachment. Later traditions have kind of responded to that by looking at practices which do involve the whole body, and I wonder if there is some kind of resonance between those two worlds, right? The, the, the phenomenological practices or perception theory based around the body that merleau Ponty puts together, and then this kind of shift within Buddhism itself. Do you think there's any validity to that?
1: right so this is a this is a one this is an an extremely important um uh, you know issue in 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 Buddhism and um and at the intersection between sort of Buddhist and and contemporary sort of philosophical and scientific approaches to the mind and the, that is does buddhism is buddhism let's say host to um to a kind of a Interesting methodological uh, approach to to the study of uh, of uh, mind and, and and mental contents. Then, in some sense, makes it a, a viable contributor contributor to the uh, to the contemporary debate. And so, there is a range of views there. So, um, obviously, uh, Buddhism champions this no self, no self view, right? I mean, this is sort of the hallmark um, um, philosophical position that that comes from hmm. the Buddhist tradition. Um, the idea that there's really no enduring sort of self of substance, understood in the kind of Cart- Cartesian, uh, traditional Cartesian or Platonic sense, or indeed in thinking of Indian philosophy, in the sense of an Atman. So now you might say, Well, okay, so the Buddhist uh, Buddhist conceptions of mind are are anchored in this particular canonical view that says there is really no enduring self. Um, and then the question becomes, All right, so how do we account for agency? How does a, mm. a practitioner on a path, right, reconcile this notion that there is really no enduring um, uh, self or even a sense of self with the with the demands of the path, right? The idea of uh, formulating the rights of intentions, overcoming unwholesome habits, and making progress along the path. So what is the engine that drives, in some sense, that um that process and how can a buddhist novice navigate uh, sort of uh, the terrain um given that uh it's supposed to adhere to this notion that there is really no 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 permanent no self so my take on this is that what what do you really have so there, there, there are people who have argued that um a lot of the the, the philosophical ideas in buddhism really grow out or or come out of uh, meditative practice right that uh, Hmm. the 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 buddhism's main metaphysical tenets are a product of uh, the kind of investigations uh direct sort of introspective investigations or investigations by means of uh, meditative practice that uh, stem out of this early early, early buddhist tradition i take a slightly different view there and of course there there have been a number of people have been quite critical of that um uh, that says that in fact a lot of the but this practice uh, what might nowadays go by the by the term of mindfulness and everything that falls under that umbrella whether it's sort of attention meditation open monitoring meditation a whole host of other meditative practices they're not so much um what you might call um instruments on a power of say scientific investigation for observing the mind right because because as we well know the mind in the case of of observing our mental states uh, observation is not a is not a neutral instrument, right? Whatever we observe changes in the process of being observed because it is the mind that get, gets to know itself in some sense. So rather than assuming that these are sort of um, theory neutral or or um, or theory uncontaminated uh, uh, methods, uh, it's better to assume that, uh, and in fact, in fact, there is increasingly more evidence to suggest that the the scope is to simply drive home or make vivid this important um canonical buddhist uh, principles so the idea is that if we buddhists believe let's say as but many buddhists do that there is no such thing as a permanent self where or, or that uh, things don't really endure for longer than a moment although how long that moment lasts is uh, it's highly speculative then then the point of your practice is to make this this idea as this truth right uh, that the tradition takes as 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 canonical uh, make them personal for you, make them sort of vivid, so that uh, they're not just ideas not notions that you have acquired by you know reading a text or listening to a to a discourse but rather they are they, are, they become existential axioms of your own, of your own life that they change the way you see yourself and and see the world so if you take the view that um that the scope of uh, this practices is, is to as i said drive home make vivid um uh this conceptions of um identity personal identity, let's say that Buddhism uh, takes as canonical, then you have a very different view of meditation so meditation is not really an instrument for discovering fundamental metaphysical truths uh including truths about yourself, but rather uh is a way to um to make this canonical uh principles and truths um, familiar right so that so that uh, you uh, you they're not just sort of things that one acquires on the basis of having subscribed to some belief but rather they they um they, they become so to speak uh, one's practical truths the, the 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 principles by which one navigates the world now that might that might be sort of a long way of saying that um, that I take the view that the the process by which one discovers and makes this uh, this principles uh, vivid or makes them personal it's not a it's not a um, it's not a regimented process so uh, there is a great deal of change there's a great deal of pushing back and there is discovery and the buddhist tradition as it evolves uh, uh, spawns new traditions new ways of uh, conceiving the mind and there's a great deal of there's a rich scholastic tradition that grows out of that Uh, and the buddhists themselves eventually become philosophers and and so they may they may start with sort of this practical concerns about addressing primarily, as the Buddha famously put it, right the um, the problem of suffering, right, uh, and its eradication. And eventually, you have this interesting flowering where you have an extremely sophisticated metaphysics of mind um, and a very complex uh, epistemology uh, that uh, really uh, it's has no uh, no equivalent in the West until basically you know the modern the modern period.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in there, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. There are a few points I'd like to respond to. I just need to decide which one would be the most sensible for where we're going to go next. There are a number of interesting points of tension there. Um, One thought that came up while I was listening to you was to what degree these kinds of practices with an intention that's rooted in a classical principle within one of the traditions of Buddhism ends up being a mere form of indoctrination. Mm whether you are in a sense being guided to discover something that itself is almost socially constructed by the context, uh, and to what degree you are discovering something which is an innate truth about the human condition. Based on a lot of the understanding that has developed over the last century in particular, that's probably a good question to ask, right? I mean, phenomenology, as you, you will know better than I do, reaches a certain point, within the Western intellectual tradition, where, and it's kind of a dead end. Right. It's not just science, there are also philosophers debating the, the degree to which we can actually create this perspective from nowhere. And we've had various guests on before, from cognitive science too, who've, who've argued for or against that, who've discussed that in various ways. But I, I wouldn't say that we've reached a kind of end point yet in that discussion either, right? It continues to be a topic of debate which can be handled in different ways. I guess for me personally, and one of the themes that runs through the podcast, is is to what degree we are kind of delusional about what we think we're doing, whether we're intellectuals or practitioners. And There are a couple of themes that I'll pick up on and I'll mention, and then we can see what you, you say to those before we move on to the next topic. One is certainly the well-trained Western teachers of Buddhism who often have a PhD in Philosophy or science or something else, they will use terms like phenomenology, right? And they'll still end up right. almost rationalizing what might be for you and I slightly dubious claims based on the kind of borrowing uh, or the appropriation of terminology from science or from philosophy. And there does continue to be in the West this kind of idea that if I just meditate enough, I will pierce through to reality at some point. Again, that's that's the kind of deck stage of the point I made at the beginning, right? To what degree. Are they conditioning themselves into a belief which they then construct a kind of reality around, and then which they live inside, and which their subjective experience kind of justifies and proves, and to what degree is there some kind of neutral terrain where perception can be purified, clarified, cleared up, whatever term a person might prefer to use, and see reality more more fully? I'll turn that into a kind of uh, hopefully coherent question. To what degree, as a collective of people thinking about these topics, there is a ground to say, well, look, perhaps we can find some kind of agreement to the degree to which we are increasing our capacity to experience material reality more fully through phenomenology, or whether we are, in a sense, always closed inside these individual or collective meaning making systems where, you know, we construct ideas and beliefs, you could call them ideologies as well if you wanted to, and we kind of operate within them, and the world remains forever outside our grasp. So if I f- finalise that thought, to what degree do you think we can continue with these stories about perception being refined and bringing us closer to some kind of shared reality, or or not?
1: Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Uh excellent questions an excellent way of framing it it really it really helps me to sort of uh you know uh, uh kind of narrow narrow the, the the scope of um of what's going on here so um i mean the the uh the um so let, let me let me just put it this way so the mm-hmm. what, what what the reason why i i th- i sought to bring and I'm, I'm i've been doing that in 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 my work for several uh, years now, in fact, for the better part of um, a decade and a half, mm. the phenomenological tradition in conversation with the the, um, the Buddhist philosophical tradition, particularly the Buddhist philosophical tradition um, that uh, looks to the uh, to the um, uh, scope of perception as an instrument of knowledge, is that there is a great deal of uh, similarity in in their approaches. So let me uh, let me just uh, quickly uh, uh, point to things out. So the phenomenological tradition is premised on this idea that. Um, that uh uh that perception doesn't really uh uh it's not a, it's not representational in other words it is not as though um when i look at a thing uh whether it's a, a, a glass of water right in front of me or or a painting or a chair um what I'm really seeing is some sort of a mental image that the mind creates, uh, uh, that, that that the senses sort of create uh, by aggregating all the information that I gather from the environment. So that is, so to take the view that perception is representational is to say, kind of in a sort of Lockean, Barclian sense, is to say that we don't really have direct access to the world. We have a mediated access to the world via a representation. The problem, of course, is that um, the question then becomes: Well, how do I know that? How do I know, right, that my access to the world is not direct but via representation? It's simply a—it's simply a, a, its simply a posit, and it's a problematic one at, uh, at that. Now, the phenomenological tradition, starting with Husserl, wants to make the case that, in fact, no. Um, as Husserl famously put it, the phenomenological dictum is that is to the things themselves, right? So perception mm-hmm. puts us in touch with yeah. the things themselves, right? There is really no representational filter there. Um, and so when you take that view, really what you're arguing is that um, perception provides a sort of a perspectival encounter for a whole host of situation and things, but does put us in touch directly with uh, with uh, uh, with the objects themselves. So let me give you an example. So for instance, uh, and this is a, this is relevant given the given the importance of uh, debates nowadays that look to things like uh, virtual reality and and the whole simulation theory of reality, right? That we could very well be living in a simulation. So, if you adopt a representationalist view of perception, then you say that it's it's you you one step closer to embracing a kind of a irrealist view of the world and of um, um, uh, and of uh, perception as being unreliable. And that is, you take the view that in fact. So let, let me give you an example. So let's say I walk down a particular street. Let's say I walk down, I don't know, Paris Champs Elysees, right? And I'm seeing the Eiffel Tower in the distance, right? And let's say this is my first ever uh, trip to Paris. Um, and so a um, a representationalist would want to say that, well, I'm not really seeing. I'm just seeing a. I'm just seeing a, um, a a construct, right? I'm seeing something that's sort of created by my mind. Um, uh, uh, I'm not having a direct encounter with the object at hand, but the reality is that I am having a, a direct, an, an encounter with the object at hand. Let's say that I've seen, as a child, like growing up, I've seen, you know, I read books and seen the Eiffel Tower and pictures, but, it, but that kind of, that kind of secondary knowledge, the knowledge that I gain from watching pictures or, sorry, from seeing pictures or watching movies or reading books, it's not the same as the direct encounter with the object at hand. So the direct encounter affords a whole um, a rich uh, uh, kind of content uh, that emphasizes foreground, background relations, condition, various kinds of conditions, pers- personal expectation. Wow, it's so tall, it's so magnificent, and so on and so forth. Um, that cannot be had otherwise, right? And so, uh, so uh, there's really no substitute for that kind of freshness that perception brings to the encounter we have with uh, with reality. And here's where, so this is where the Buddhist tradition comes in, because the uh, the Buddhist philosophical tradition, particularly the Buddhist the theories of knowledge that grow out of Buddhism, are really very clear about this notion that there is a difference between. Um, uh, a perception is contaminated with lots of thoughts and beliefs, and a kind of a fresh direct encounter with reality. Now, of course, that itself is uh, is, de- is is subject to some debate. But the idea is that beginning with this very important key uh, player in the Buddhist tradition, the philosopher Dignaga, roughly around the fifth century of the common era, wants to make the case that if you if you look at the world and you see tables and chairs and people and trees. That's really not a perceptual encounter. Perception only gives us the um, the, uh, uh, the the particular. So I don't really see trees and chairs. I see this unique instance of an object, right? Um, and so as it it is as if um, the emphasis on 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 having as clear eyed as as uncontaminated as unconstructed an account of reality as it is possible. Now, there is a completely different step to or uh, to say that, oh, what I'm really seeing here when I've cleared my mind or I cleared my my uh, my perception of all sorts of conceptual clutter, that what I'm seeing is reality as is. Um, that's a that might be a bridge too far. But to mm-hmm. say that perception is um is always, in some sense, a um, a deceptive uh, instrument that it's always contaminated, shot through of all sorts of dispositions and 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 uh, and conceptions in some sense is, uh, unfair uh and not in keeping with a clear phenomenological account of the way we um we uh, um, uh we navigate the world mm-hmm. so so um so buddhists uh insist on on pers- on the on the notion that it is possible to achieve uh clear uh ways of um of uh, perceiving of uh of uh uh, analyzing phenomena in a way that it's not in some sense you could say um tainted by predispositions uh uh, beliefs and so on and so forth now having said that uh that's not as i said that's not to say that there is some, some, some sort of a direct encounter of reality as is and this is where the problem of deception comes in because to go, to circle back to your to your issue about the role that meditation plays here, do meditators delude themselves into thinking that that by spending hours um practicing certain forms of meditation, uh they are, they think that they are in that puts them in touch with reality, whatever that might mean, where in fact they just down some rabbit hole, uh some metaphysical rabbit hole, and they end up sort of um right uh uh, believing all sorts of nonsense, right? So, so yes, uh, I would say that the um, the variety of, um, of positions out there in Buddhism itself, theories of, you know, how the world is and, you know, um, how to understand, uh, you know, w- whether they are persons and selves and so on and so forth, it's, it's self-testimony to the fact that there is really no agreed upon, uh, there's no consensus at, as to what it is that meditation delivers. And I have a little agne- anecdote, if, um, if we have the time. So, I uh, uh, many many years ago, I was in um, I was in India in Sarnat, and uh, I was uh, uh, I ha- having a discussion with some young uh, 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 Tibetan monks who were students there at the uh, Central Institute for High Tibetan Studies. And uh, meditation came up our, in our conversation, and a couple of the monks there these were Tibetan monks uh, from the Tibetan refugee—I mean, the various sort of. Uh, uh, enclaves in the, in the himalayas and they were saying well you know we uh we just uh went on a meditation retreat we did this traditional Theravada forms of uh, meditative practice uh, mindfulness mm-hmm. practice and we we're surprised um that uh that this meditative practice is so effective and it um because uh, this is sort of lost in our tradition the kind of meditative practices that we practiced in buddhism involving primarily visualization um they're not as effective as this interesting uh, practice that we're trying to bring it back into our our fold. And this is sort of mm-hmm. fascinating in a way, because yeah. these were monks who would otherwise be fairly dogmatic. Uh, you know, the Tibetan Buddhism is fairly rigid when it comes to the sort of scholastic affiliations. And here, mm-hmm. here we had a group of monks who were actually weighing, weighing well outside the fold of the Mahayana tradition, learning an in- interesting meditative technique from uh, earlier. Buddhist tradition and finding it extremely useful and illuminating uh, uh, for their insights, and this is a, this is sort of interesting because it showed that that um, dogmatic adherence to to a set of canonical beliefs can provide an, uh, uh, can can turn out to be a hindrance. So the very thing, the very articles of faith that you profess by being a member of a particular sect or particular group, can become sort of the uh, the very thing that keeps you prevents you from from you know, that kind of open ended exploration that uh, um, meditative practice and rational inquiry based on that is supposed to deliver.
0: This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practising life. Drawing on person-centred counselling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too as well as meditation and for the more adventurous folks I can offer shamanic tools well they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale so whatever your economic status if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent, or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship, and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session. In person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. I know that the Dalai Lama at some point decided to bring in, I think he even brought in Goenka to do some of his 10 day Theravada retreats with uh, Tibet monks in various locations around India and uh, Nepal. You got me thinking again. I guess it depends on the kind of metaphysical position you're taking and the sort of ontology you're putting into practice as you approach these questions. And I state that in a way that's probably perfectly obvious to you, but for many lay folk, it doesn't really appear as a kind of possibility, right? Because as you were saying with the Tibetan Buddhism, they have a certain metaphysics that they're presented, they're indoctrinated into that, and then they bring Mm -hmm. that and that mediates their relationship with the world to some degree. Whether it's good or bad is is another debate entirely, an interesting one, but not for us now. But I think if you're thinking about Western practitioners, we do live in a very flexible society in terms of meaning-making and in terms of the kinds of ideas we bring to thinking about practice and ourselves just as people in the world. I found it very, very useful, for example, when I first started looking at philosophy as a Buddhist practitioner, the idea of the process relational ontologies, which I think also fit well with phenomenology because then yourself sets up a couple of principles which take us away from this obsession with subjects and objects. Everything by its very nature is immediately relational and in process. And I was thinking about your story about the the Eiffel Tower as well, because if your story is that it's a representation, as you were pointing out, that might be more of a, a materialist, rational, naturalistic position. Well, Even in that story, the mediation that's taking place is still through time and space, which we could see as active participants as well, right? So I perceive across space within a given time. And even like the material basis for that, okay, there are light rays hitting my retina, which are producing this reaction in the brain, which formulates an image, there's no reason to believe all of that to some degree is somehow disembodied, artificial, separate from the world, and therefore that in that kind of storytelling we are not still in our perceptive capacity and in our active perceptions engaging with something called reality i think the big question might be really to what degree beliefs ideas and our kind of conditioning overmediates our relationship with perception and reality right and whether our obsession with a certain philosophical or theoretical position overmediates our capacity to to explore right yeah because what i'm hearing across our conversation so far is you kind of saying well look that's where you're ending up right and you used a nice phrase a minute ago where you said well it gets in the way of the open explorative engagement with 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 any of these topics which allows us at least to kind of expand possibilities so i mean again i said quite a few things there but maybe you can respond to that
1: sure yeah i mean um you know, examples are always a wonderful way to to drive home some of this uh, philosophical points. So, um, he, here's how I really see the difference between the, the sort of the typical representationalist account uh, or approach to the to perception that says, no, the, the 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 world is constructed for us by our perceptual systems, and so we just present we're presented with an image, and here, this science has shown us uh, time and again. Um, by pointing out the many ways in which we can be fooled, right? Uh, there's uh, a whole raft of, uh, you know, uh, experimental studies that show that we are, there's such a thing as intentional blindness or there's change blindness and, and, um, and that uh, perception again and again can be easily tricked. Right. And so, mm-hmm. because it can be easily tricked, uh, a lot of uh, uh, theorists are quick to jump to the conclusion that in fact, the world, as we, as we see it is a, just a grand illusion, right? Generated by, some sort of a representational system, um, uh, and that's and that's that. So therefore, you know, perception is not to be not to be uh, trusted, not to be relied upon. Um, but the reality is that um, uh, perceiving, take sight, right seeing, uh, it's not again a, a, a passive registering of, of information from the world, It's is not even sort of a a, a complicated. You know, constructive process that happens in our mind. It's rather a very complex sensory motor uh, a process, right? Um, uh, seeing is itself a kind of skill, right? Uh, you, if you think of small infants, right? They, how do they navigate? How they interact with the world? Well, they grab objects, they chew on them, they try to bend them, and all that. And out of this very rich set of uh, sensory motor interactions, eventually you know, grows a kind of a skill that allows you to basically see better or understand exactly what it is that you're seeing only because you've manipulated, you've interacted with these objects. So because of the complexity of this, as I said, the sensory sensory motor uh, complexity of perception, it's not as though uh, every time I turn my head and see something, there's some sort of a uh it, it's a simple story of an input output right uh input sen- the input there comes the sense information there comes the the perceptual image right um rather there are whole sort of possibilities that are afforded by the environment by the skill of the individual right so if i if i am a taller person i can reach sort of you know the cabinets in my kitchen that are higher up uh, and that just affords me different kinds of uh you know uh, possibilities um now <clears throat> So again perception is something that happens to us it's something that we do right um, and it's important to keep that in mind because because um, uh, it, it shows that that uh, there are such things as what you might call skilled perceivers so let's say mm-hmm. if I if I go walking taking walking in in um, in in the woods let's say with um, with a of a botanist, right? Someone who is who specializes in, you know, he's a he's a scientist of the of the natural world, plants in particular, right? I just see foliage of different types and sizes, and I don't really notice many differences. But to the trained eye of the botanist, right, there's a whole rich complexity that that, that shows up that's just not visible to mm-hmm. the the untrained eye of the uh, the 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 one who lacks sort of the the requisite expertise so in some sense you could say that that acquiring knowledge about the world also sharpens our perceptual uh, uh our perception uh, uh, capacity so we 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 see the world as having richer detail the richer contours much in the way that that let's say a painter sees it or a musician is able to to hear nuances that someone who doesn't have that kind of aptitude uh, cannot so there is something to be said here about about um about expertise opening up uh, uh, a world of possibility that they're just not available to the, to the novice, to the untrained uh, eye. And you can, you can, you can um, uh, extrapolate that to the case of, um, of, you know, phenomenology and and meditative practices. You could say, well, the skilled meditator may not necessarily uh, see reality as is, but surely has a much better understanding of, um, of the nature of, you know, human dispositions and the way we the reactive behavior works, and various ways to counter that reactive behavior, the ability to develop sort of more more positive mental states and counter the negative mental states. So, so there is there is a way in which you can construe all that as a very complex moral phenomenology, for instance, right? So you can say, well, Buddhism may not be. Uh, host to something like a pre-modern science of the mind, but sure enough, there is a very interesting and rich moral phenomenology uh, that um, that um, provides sort of a, a a kind of a template for how we may understand the various sort of dynamic processes, knowing well that we're not really there, there is really no um, no separation here between kind of a, an inner and an an outer. There is no object that sort of. You know, out there and mind in here, uh, but rather there's, as you said, on you know, on a process ontological account, they're just a series of very complex dynamic processes uh, that are that constitutive that 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 constitute the kind of you know, middle-sized dry goods that uh, populate our our day-to-day world.
0: Middle-sized dry goods I like that. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> great. That's a really nice summary, and that's very helpful. Thank you. I mean, I've said it twice already, so why not say it a third time? It seems to be that whenever beliefs and theories capture us, we tend to engage in overreach, which I I guess is just a human weakness overall that Buddhists are guilty of too. If we were to suspend for a moment this word reality, we we could probably have more interesting discussions about what's actually going on, both with perception and meditation for sure. Now, um, there is a big question, and I'm, I'm giving you big questions here. Uh, my son uh, started the third year of high school this year and uh, that means in Italy at least they start studying philosophy and he came back last week and said to me dad he said dad, so, so what's consciousness dad and, oh my god <laughs> such an easy question to answer so I said okay well let's start with you what what have you learned so far and does that make sense to you and, and do you have any experience of that let's, let's begin there right? It is an interesting question when you're 16, it's an interesting question when you're in your 40s and 50s. What kind of presupposition are you operating from in this book, but also in your ongoing work? How do you tend to think about and define consciousness, which, I mean, at least to some degree you have to touch on, right, if you're going to talk about reality and perception and our relationship to both?
1: Yeah, that's the that's a million-dollar question, right? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, we the wonderful thing uh, about this uh, this particular topic is that it's it's one of the few areas in in philosophy and in science where we, we don't yet have a a, a a theory or a theoretical framework that's agreed upon by all so we have a number of candidates out there but this is still sort of a uh, uh, it's an open field so any any, any smart your son, you know it might be the future philosopher or scientist who has you know <laughs> cracks cracks that question has well, the provides the sure. answer yes <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah A- uh, anyway so um i um so i so let me say something about you know what what my take is on this and then you know yeah. where, where i see the buddhist tradition coming in so so i um i'm sort of very sympathetic to the uh to to thomas nagel's uh, notion that um that uh, consciousness is really uh, uh, ought to, is to be honest, by and large, in terms of uh, the phenomenal aspect of experience, right? So, as Nagel famously puts it in that that uh, uh, paper of his uh, from the 70s, "What it is like to be a bat." Um, uh, for an organism to be conscious, there must be something it is like to be that organism, right? So, um, so organisms and so that of course extends consciousness be, be beyond humans um uh, inhabit a particular wor- uh, a particular point of view or bring a certain perspective onto the world so i don't just see things i see them i see them um as occasions for various kinds of experiences right so to be conscious to be aware even minimally aware um is to be to have a certain kind of experience there is something it is like to taste freshly brewed coffee there's something it is like to watch a uh, you know a, a sunset there's something it is like to hear the 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 gentle dripping of a, say you know fall rain uh, all this rich phenomenal uh, uh, uh experience says that uh in our case uh consciousness is sort of the 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 ground the background upon which all everything else is is built but this is sort of a phenomenological story it's a story that says that that we are first and foremost or fundamentally conscious beings there is a second story which says well, does consciousness also ground a sense of self a subject right uh, is is consciousness most fundamentally not individuated is such a thing as of a is consciousness kind of a you know field of some sort or does consciousness by its very Nature ground a certain, you know, sense of self, and here is where the debate where where the debate uh, starts. So, um, some would argue that um, that whereas consciousness is is uh, fundamentally um, experiential, that is to be conscious is to have experiences of certain kind. There would resist the move to subjectivity and say well there can be such a thing as consciousness without any sort of sense of self there can be a pure consciousness right um or non-dual consciousness as some philosophical traditions in india like avaita vedanta would claim um and some of the contemporary uh, literature that looks at things like ego dissolution and um and uh, the experience of people who are you know uh, uh, take various drugs and experience sort of you know have oceanic feelings or a sense of the subjectivity dropping away so leaving that aside in the case of the, Buddha, the buddhist tradition is really fascinating because the buddhist started this notion that there is not such thing as a self which is a canonical belief it's sort of a we can almost say there's a dogma right uh, you can't be a buddhist mm-hmm. presumably if you believe there's such a thing as a self but then but then rejecting the self doesn't mean that the buddhists also Necessarily, what in fact, not at all. They, they reject consciousness. So consciousness is taken to be one of the uh, way this is put in the Buddhist Abhidharma tradition, one of the dharmas. Right? So it's an irreducible element of our of our metaphysics. So Buddhists have to account for consciousness, and account for it by saying it is a it is part of reality. It's a it's a it's a dharma. It's real. But then it's not enough to say that it's real. You have to so sort of describe it. Well, real in what way? And and so out of this attempt to describe the complexity of of conscious mental states, grows a very rich debate that says, well, um, uh, how do we become conscious? Uh, is there something about um, is there something about the nature very nature of consciousness that makes us self-conscious, or is self-consciousness a construct, perhaps a delusion, a, delus, a, a delusive or delusionary construct? That can be easily uh, eliminated or eradicated while maintaining while maintaining consciousness. And here's where here's where the debate, as I said, gets very very interesting. Uh, and the debate is typically between those who take it the, that um, uh, that consciousness is fundamentally reflexive or self-reflexive. That is, in uh, I'm simultaneously aware of an object and of myself as as uh, as uh, the individual who is aware of the object. So so the idea is to say that. The philosophical jargon here is to say that um, there's a, a kind of a dual aspect to our conscious experience that being conscious makes manifest at once a world and someone who's present to that world. And someone, this elusive subject, may not necessarily be anything fixed, a metaphysical substance of, of some sort. It's just simply um, a, uh, a, a, a witnessing subject. So consciousness makes present at once a world. And our awareness of uh, of that world, um, so that's that's sort of uh, uh, that's where I find myself uh, in in this big debate. Now there are those who want to say things like they are illusionists about consciousness, who think that there is nothing it is like to be conscious. Uh, that this I, this language of something being something it is like is a is a misnomer, is a is a construct, is a delusion. That we to to or to um, rid ourselves of. I don't find that uh, line of thought very, very helpful. There are the so-called consciousness deniers, as the philosopher Galen Strawson argued uh, not so long ago. Uh, and that just flies in the face of all of our basic common sense uh, uh, intuitions. And so I I don't find that line of thought very mm-hmm. helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, as I said, it's interesting in the case of Buddhism, because um, for a tradition that is premised on the idea that, of there being no permanent, enduring, substantial selves, um nonetheless it has to contend with the fact that there is such a thing as consciousness and there is what you call continuity so they have to account for diachronic and synchronic unity of our conscious experiences there is really no clear answer there so the buddhist solution is not very doesn't in the end provide satisfactory answers but in a, in a process of trying to come up with sort of ways to account for continuity while denying anything that continues right um uh they do come up with very interesting answers one of those is that um is a sort of dual aspect view that says that uh and of course this is not uh, universally accepted there is there are debates within the buddhist tradition but um but uh the intuition there is that to the extent that we can um we can uh uh have a clear eyed uh definition or account of what consciousness is it's got to have this capacity to uh make itself present in a process of revealing its contents or its objects.
0: Yeah, good. Thank you. That's a a nice overview once again. I find it interesting that so many of our conversations, both within and outside the academic world that regard so many topics, just assume or operate from an assumption that consciousness is something or something else. And you rarely hear lip service paid to the fact that, as you started out by saying, we we don't actually have any consensus on this. And even if you've got someone like Daniel Dennett, who will try and convince everybody that he knows exactly what consciousness is, it's just a byproduct <laughs> of material processes. its um It's kind of interesting. One other theory that comes up, which... I move in and out of being partial to, I have certain degrees of sympathy with, is uh, panpsychism. Philip Goff, who's a, a British academic, is, has been pushing panpsychism as, as as a good theoretical assumption. What do you make of panpsychism specifically in the context of Buddhism? Is there, is there a branch of a Buddhist um, you know, philosophy of mind which has some resonance with or sympathy to panpsychism?
1: Yeah, panpsychism is a very, very interesting. Um, uh, I mean, the, obviously, the panpsychist perspective is absolutely fascinating, and um, and the fact that sort of make made a comeback in in recent decades it makes it ever even more so, uh, particularly among among you know people with uh, you know bona fide scientific credentials. So, um, so I mean, there 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 is different ways to even sort of think about panpsychism. Um, there is one way to think about panpsychism is that basically consciousness is is a fundamental property of reality, much like space time, right? So so the space time and and consciousness they're perhaps folded in somehow in a mysterious way. Um, some panpsychists are what you might call micropsychists. They think that well there are, there are phenomenal whatever uh, properties that are intrinsic to the most basic building blocks of reality. Photons are conscious, right? Uh, But in a very, 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 very minimal, uh, very minimally so. Um, And so for many panpsychists, the problem is that if you assume that phenomenality is part of the structure of reality, then you have to account for how it is that we get to the kind of experience that, say, we have, right? We have this very rich, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, kind of technicolor experience you know so how do i get to this very unified experience that that humans have in many many other animals um and so their panpsychism runs into what's sometimes been called the combination problem right we understand how matter combines but we don't understand how how bits of phenomenality combine and so uh, so that's one sort of stumbling block uh, to to panpsychism gaining a, 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 a more sort of a, a, a wider acceptance. Some people have come and say, well, there, there there are ways to flip the story. They have to say, well, it's not that bits of phenomenality combine to give the rich phenomenal experience that say we have, but rather there's such a thing as a field of consciousness which is pervasive, and so what happens is that individuals simply uh, modulate or articulate or channel if you want whatever your you know your metaphor you know uh you, you you might prefer this universal field of consciousness that allows for a whole host of things into subjectivity and um and um and uh, intuition and and premonition and a whole range of phenomena that we really struggle to, to 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 sort of uh, account for uh, but in that case you have the problem, the so-called decombination problem. How is it this massive unified field of consciousness becomes my individual consciousness and your individual consciousness, your unique perspective, and so on and so forth, and the perspective of the you know cat and of the honeybee, etc. Now, Buddhism um uh does have conceptions of consciousness and here i'm i'm thinking particularly of the Yogacara tradition uh of the mm-hmm. mahayana uh, school that says that um there is such a thing as a as a s- background storehouse, warehouse consciousness the repository right of all mm-hmm. all conscious experiences so so and, and 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 so and this is sort of basic and ongoing uh some have trans have have referred to it as a subliminal or a sub- subconscious uh, the repository full of our um, uh, uh, sort of the, the seeds the, the repository for all of our conscious seeds so to speak and that could be you know um, that you, you could in principle interpret it as as uh, as a form of panpsychism although it'd be, it would be it be a bit of a stretch now there are in uh, in east asian buddhism there are uh, there are uh, sort of uh, proposals uh, that that uh, look at mind or the mind of the buddha that uh, is very suggestive of panpsychism right so um, there is some sort of a buddha mind or buddha nature right uh, which is sort of fundamental to to everything um and it's the principle that that's that, that uh, distinguishes let's say sentient from non-sentient uh, objects um was being sentient beings from non-sentient objects and then makes makes sentience as some sort of a kind of a universal uh feature of 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 the living uh, now that's that limits uh that so it's not exactly panpsychism because it does say that there are certain, certain things that lack you know uh, consciousness but it also so at the same time allows for for consciousness to be some sort of a fundamental uh uh constant of of everything that's that's uh, that's alive so that's i'm mm-hmm. not sure that uh, that that's a, that answers your, your your question but yes i think there are there are strains of Buddhist thought that are very much other um, uh, uh, sympathetic to what can be interpreted as forms of uh, panpsychism.
0: Thank you. No, that was, that was great. It's interesting to think about uh, this concept of Buddha mind as stretching beyond the constraints of the physical body. There are certainly metaphors that I've heard from various Buddhist traditions from Mahayana onwards and into Vajrayana traditions, which which could echo the sentiments of a of a panpsychic view, yeah, something along the lines of every single atom has a has a Buddha contained within it. So it's all, mm-hmm. again, it's all interesting. I guess the best we can do for now is yeah. speculate and and look at where where we can see, um, these conceptual frameworks don't quite add up as you, as you describe nicely in this problem of well, you know, how does consciousness distinguish itself into different forms? in different um, material forms, whether it's human, cat, or or honeybee. So for those listening, you've been listening to a conversation which has picked up on various themes in Christian's book, Perceiving Reality, which dates back to 2015, but uh, remains fascinating and certainly topical. Let's uh, say a few words about a couple of projects you're working on At present, from what I've read, you are working on two books. One is called Sense, Self-Awareness and Sensibility, which also looks at cross-cultural philosophy. And then Moments of Consciousness, which would be another book uh, currently under contract with OUP. So first of all, how are those projects going? Um, Are they uh, going to come to completion? And if so, uh, what kind of things might listeners learn from, from reading either of them?
1: So yes, thank you. Uh, so yeah, the Moments of Consciousness book, I'll start with that one. It's a project that's uh, uh, almost uh, almost completed. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah, I expect to send the manuscript to the editor uh, in the spring. Uh, and that's just sort of an introduction to Buddhist philosophy of mind. Uh, it's part of a, a series that, uh, that Oxford started. Um, and uh, it's basically an attempt to uh, introduce students of Western philosophy uh, that take a uh, just a regular course in philosophy of mind that looks at you know uh, perception and intentionality and the mind-body problem um to what the buddhist tradition uh, how the buddhist tradition has, has thought about some of these issues so some of it is an attempt to basically um uh, contribute to this project of cross-cultural philosophical reflection expanding the philosophical canon allowing for a richer sort of dialogue um between philosophical traditions, uh, so it's sort of part of a you know a, this move to to broaden the scope of our philosophical inquiry by by uh, by making room for contributions from you know non-Western sources. In this case, the Buddhist tradition. So it's very much a uh, a, a more accessible text uh, aimed at um, you know the general public and graduate and undergraduate um, audiences. were are kind of curious. Uh, what is it that uh, Buddhists specifically can contribute to advancing the debate in some you of know, these crucial debates in, in philosophy of uh, philosophy of mind? So, uh, and I'm kind of excited about uh, excited about that project because it really has not been attempted before. It's in some sense have been a number of obviously monographs uh, targeted at specialist audiences, uh, but this is sort of the first uh, attempt to to see uh, what specifically do Buddhists say about uh, you know, can they do they have a solution to the mind-body problem? Do they? Uh, is there some sort of an interesting account of intentionality in Buddhism? How do Buddhists understand the scope mm. of um, uh, perception? Uh, are they disjunctivist or conjunctivist about perception, and so on and so forth? So, you know, so it's it's kind mm. of an interesting. Uh, it's an and and the title itself is is um, meant to drive home the point that uh, uh, it is axiomatic for the Buddhism for Buddhist metaphysics that there is really no uh, there are no sort of permanent enduring things, but even consciousness itself in some sense is momentary so hence moments moments of consciousness. Uh, the other project is um uh, it's sort of a kind of a more long term project. it's not necessarily a cross-cultural project is uh, it sort of has a um, a um, a sort of tr- attempt to to translate some of these philosophical intuitions in um a more sort of literary form um so it's uh, it's it's it looks at at this idea that um that uh uh, uh feelings themselves uh, or affective states have what we call epistemic status or epistemic value that um uh, kind of in keeping with all no, notions of emotional uh, intelligence, but more importantly, uh, build on this idea that uh, that uh, uh, there is a way of knowing that's non-conceptual, that's dispositional, uh, that our all of our mental states, in some sense, come bound up with uh, um, with some sort of uh, knowledge, implicit knowledge that just awaits awaits uh, to be uh, to be you know. Uh, uh, experience that were were, were taken up um, and so uh, what I'm trying to do in that book is give a a various sort of uh, basic account of the way in which um, perception and our general sensitivity to to the world shape our our awareness uh, so it's sort of a ground up account of um of our so-called high order cognitive uh, processes and it's looks it's not just it doesn't just look at uh, at uh, humans so it's not just concerned with human cognition it also looks at uh, animal cognition because it turns out we um, we share a lot of our our non-human animals and um, and it turns out that the uh, the uh, That we stand to benefit by understanding exactly how octopuses, for instance, navigate the world or how bees see the world. And that's absolutely fascinating.
0: Agreed. Absolutely. Both books sound really interesting. So great. Perhaps we'll have to get you back on to talk about those when they're published. Well, Christian, thank you for giving up some of your time to talk to us today. It's been a, a very interesting discussion. And it's been good to gain a bit more insight into these complex but fascinating topics, which I would argue, uh, intelligent modern-day practitioners can't really ignore. Good luck with your work and the upcoming books, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I look forward to uh, talking to you at some point in the future.